I'm Jeff Cohen. Joe Zimmerman pondered the existence of Hashem at a relatively young age, which led to a quick transition to an observant life. It wasn't always easy for Joe. In fact, a devastating fire had a big impact on his journey. But with the help of mentors and teachers, he ultimately found his way. Joe, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Oh, thank you for having me. And we can see right from the intro that I have teased this fire and the impact that it had on your life, but we're not going to get to that right away because we're going to leave a little something to keep the listeners interested for later in your story. So let's begin more at the start of your journey and give our listeners a sense of where it all begins. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Chicago and never really left Chicago. I grew up in Lincolnwood, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And I went to um, public school. I come from a non-observant family. In fact, my mother was known for making the best ham in the entire family. The only thing I knew about Judaism was what I got from Hebrew school. And I got to tell you, I was such a bad student. I spent most of my time out in the hall in the principal's office in the Hebrew school than in the Hebrew school. But nevertheless, I learned how to basically read most of the letters. And that's about four years of Hebrew school and a, and a bar mitzvah that I had no idea what I was doing. And I was not a very good student. Uh, I was quite wild. And I spent a lot of time ditching Hebrew school and going to Cubs games. So when you talk about coming from a non-observant family, you've done a great job kind of explaining of what your family was doing to supplement your understanding of Judaism by going to Hebrew school. Was there anything going on within the home? Were there any customs or traditions that your family followed? They didn't follow anything Christian. They didn't follow that much <laughs> Judaism either. Uh, no, I don't really remember any time as a family that we did anything. Uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were acknowledged. But I will tell you that my first recollection at four years old was going to Sheboygan, Wisconsin, where my great-grandparents lived, and going to their house on a Pesach and having a Seder when I was like four years old. All I remember was this egg soup that my great-grandmother served us. I was told I have to eat everything she put in front of us. I ate the whole soup. Nobody <laughs> else ate the soup other than my great-grandfather. It was the most vile thing I've ever tasted in my entire life. And she was so happy she gave me another bowl of soup. Um, <laughs> Quite the reward. That's the only Yiddish kite I was getting from my great-grandparents. Evidently, they did keep a kosher home, from what I understand. My grandfather was totally non-religious until his father died. He would go on Friday night to services. He brought me as a child there whenever I came over. I did not understand a word what was going on, but maybe that's the only little inkling I had in the in the family is my great-grandparents Passover Seder and my grandfather giving me a little education into services, but he also was not observant. So I mentioned in the introduction this idea that you were pondering the existence of Hashem. The way you described your early years, it wouldn't seem like Hashem would even enter into your mind. There's nothing really setting the stage for this to necessarily be important to you. How do you think that came about that you started thinking about it? After my bar mitzvah, I, for some crazy reason, I had this desire to just continue Hebrew school. I really wasn't learning anything. I, I just wanted to stay in the synagogue. And then I started thinking about God. It was about 14 years old. I just started thinking about God. I would spend at least six months doing this. I would spend half hour, hour 
in a very secluded place in the house where I knew nobody would interrupt me. And I would just think about the existence of God. And after really six months of thinking, that's all. I was just thinking. I knew nothing what I was thinking about. I had no conception of what really. Now I know what I was thinking was really not the real conception of God and all that. All right, I understand. <laughs> but it was a beginning. And I started thinking and saying that my basic conclusion after six months was we were in Egypt. God took us out of Egypt. No slaves ever escaped Egypt, and no slaves ever really had a successful slave revolt. And when I started thinking about that, I said, wait, then there is a God. There's only one way we got out of Egypt. It was God. And once I recognized that, it was very simply a conversion of my mind saying, well, then you know you're Jewish. You have to keep the laws. Now, what laws I had to keep, I had no idea. I, I completely was shocked by how many laws, and if I knew about all these fast days, I don't know. But I <laughs> will tell you, I had no idea what I had to keep. My knowledge of Hebrew school was very little, and so therefore I thought all it is, okay, every once in a while you have to do something in, on Shabbos. If I may, I'll even tell you my first Shabbos that I decided to keep. So I knew from Friday night you got to go to services, and I knew that you couldn't do certain things like, you know, TV was not supposed to be wa uh, turned on or whatever. Watch, I, So I didn't watch TV. I sat at the table. Okay. And then Shabbos morning, I knew I was supposed to go to the synagogue. I went to the synagogue, had some food. I didn't know exactly all the laws, but I knew you couldn't turn on and off electricity. Yeah, okay. And then around six o'clock, I said, okay, when does Shabbos end? That I learned from Hebrew school. I, nobody ever told me I, when it ends. And so at, at about six o'clock in the evening, I go, well, it must be over. It's six o'clock. So I end a Shabbos. I went to the rabbi the next day and I said, uh, you know, I don't know when this Shabbos ends. And he said, well, it's about 7.30. I said, oh, I was off by about an hour and a half. <laughs> I said, so he said, yeah. And, and then he explained some laws to me. And I said, okay, I'll be better next week. And by the way, that has been my rule in my entire life, and I'm 70 years old. The rule of my entire life is, okay, so I did it wrong this way. All right, next, I'll do it right. I'll do it next week. I'll do it right. And that's what I've done. So I want to ask you a couple of questions just to unpack this part of your journey. The first one being you talked about the story of the Jewish slaves leaving Egypt. So for myself, having been raised secular and now being religious, a lot of my friends who are still secular they view the Jews leaving Egypt not as something that factually happened, not something that's historical. Rather, it's a story that's meant to teach you about what it means to be Jewish, and they don't necessarily think it's true. And I'm just wondering, as you started to go through this in your mind over those six months, how did you get from the point of this could be a story to this actually happened and I believe it? Even then, I realized that nobody can make up a story such as this and have it continue century after century after century. And in fact, one of the main things of Judaism, as I said, one thing that my family did have was a Passover Seder. It wasn't kosher. <laughs> the TV was playing Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. It was, there was no, very little, but they had the concept of, okay, there's a Seder. And, and we told the story, and then let's go eat. Nobody would have the basic religion 
based on an event that was made up. And, and when exactly did they start making something up? As I've said, men, now I've become a little more sophisticated. If you're going to tell me someone wrote the Torah and it wasn't Moshe from the word of God, okay, who did? And all the Bible critics and everything, they never know exactly who did it. And then it's got to be a committee of people. And I've always laughed at that one. What committee would write a book that everybody would accept all these laws? <laughs> Nobody would believe that. So therefore, there is a time when you have to say that if millions upon millions upon millions of people have accepted all the laws and the customs and the traditions, and it's gone down from generation to generation, well, tell me when somebody else made it up, because the first group would have said, what are you talking about? We didn't hear about this last year. <laughs> okay, so it would never have started. A boy in NCSY once came to me. After talking to rabbis, he had tears in his eyes, and he, uh, literally tears. And then one of the younger advisors brought him over to me. She said, uh, you got to talk to him. He's about ready to quit, just ready to go away. And I said, what's wrong? He says, I'm not going to go to yeshiva. I'm not going to be a vart of NCSY. I'm not going to be religious in any way unless you can prove to me that God exists. I know all the things, the trees, the people. But he already heard those. He, he, that's not going to sell him. So I answered him, prove to me God doesn't exist. And he goes, well, you can't give me that answer. I said, why? Billions of people throughout the world in history, how many billions and billions of people, a very small percentage don't believe in God, but billions of that, 99% of the people in this world believe in God. Now, they don't believe the same God of, uh, that the Jews believe in or this believes in. Everybody has uh, that's a multiple gods. There's a, uh, there's a uh, mythology of gods. But everybody has a concept of a God. So the burden of proof is on you. You prove to me there is no God. And okay, you don't have to go to Yeshiva. He looked at me, stopped crying. He says, you're right. I can't disprove it. I said, so look in your heart. Is there a God? He goes, of course. I said, there you go. I don't know what ever happened to the kid. <laughs> <laughs> you had a good influence on him. Maybe. I want to go back now to the 14-year-old version of Joe Zimmerman in your room deciding to keep Shabbos for the first time, but you're doing it within a secular family. You've got your parents there. I don't know if you have siblings. Did you keep this to yourself or did your parents understand what you were doing? No, nobody knew what I was doing. They thought I was just being an idiot again. My mother and father were kind of people that allowed us to make our own choices of doing things as long as we stay a part of the family. And they just figured if I'm playing upstairs in my room, I'm playing upstairs in my room. I, in those days, we used to disappear for an entire day. Nobody knew where we were. No cell phones, no nothing. I mean, the point was you had to be home at six o'clock for dinner. That's it. Where we were, my parents never knew. Now, you also said this idea that you kept that first Shabbos, spoke to a rabbi, realized you did some things right, you made some mistakes, and you wanted to be better the next week. So as you're continuing to keep Shabbos and take on more, you're also still in a public school environment. So how are you continuing to grow given where your life is? Well, keeping kosher was out of the question. My parents weren't going to change the house. I was allowed to take food that was kosher outside the house. So I, I was one of those Jews that ate outside kosher and inside the house, not kosher. Uh, very few of us that do that. Uh, when I went to school, especially now I was in high school, 
it was a little difficult, especially the one sport I was good at was soccer. And they wanted me to play on the uh, sophomore team. But I said, no. And they said, why? And I said, um, the sophomores play on Friday night. I want to play soccer, but I'm not going to play on Friday night. The soccer coach in front of everybody called me a whole bunch of names. Now he'd probably get fired. He called me a whole bunch of names. And that was challenging. But uh, I stuck to my guns because that's the kind of guy I was. I always, once I make up my mind, I'm going to stick to it. I was losing friends because I no longer had the day where everybody was going to go bowling and having a, a cheeseburger at the bowling alley. I, I'm not doing it anymore. So I picked up new friends. And uh, there were some other guys that were just starting out also. And I became friends with them a little bit. Were you actually wearing a kippah to school? Like, was it outwardly known or no? No, I didn't wear a kippah in school. This was back in the early, uh, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, it was quite dangerous in that school to, uh, if you want to get picked on. And I was a skinny little kid. I was a 110-pound weakling. So then as you're continuing through high school, you then make a change as you're continuing to grow? You don't finish in public school? Yeah. So after the end of my sophomore year, I was really begging my mom and dad to let me go to the Hebrew Theological College in Skokie, Skokie Yeshiva. That was too far for my father and mother to decide, but they allowed me to go to Ida Crown Jewish Academy. It was a mixed school and a day school. They allowed me to go there and I was thrilled. My parents allowed me to keep Shabbos because, hey, what I did on a Saturday, they couldn't care less. I don't remember any conflicts with going to family affairs, but all the family affairs that took place was usually at our house anyways. So my mother had an open house. And so therefore, I, I, I was able to do my own thing when it came to Shabbos and some basic laws. Davening, I was able to do. I got to film for my bar mitzvah that were totally puzzle, but we worked out a solution later on. Again, that's okay. I made a mistake for two years. All right, we got better. What was it like, though, transferring to a Jewish school that far into the process? You're going to be now with kids who've been doing it since kindergarten. So how are you able to catch up to the level that they're operating on when they've gotten this foundation for over a decade? That was a big challenge. For the Lumude Kodesh classes, Hebrew classes, I was a junior in high school, and I was put in with 7th and 8th graders. They had a 7th and 8th grade class at the school, and for those courses, I was with them, which was extremely embarrassing. There was absolutely no program, no classes, no concept for somebody because nobody ever did this. I think I was the first in the school, I guess, that came from public school into the day school. It was challenging. It was very uh, embarrassing, but I did my best. And then my senior year, they were already letting me learn in the regular. I, I, the truth is, I really had trouble learning anything because I was so far behind everybody else. But I made a lot of friends, and I made a lot of friends at camp. I was allowed to go to a B'nai Akiva Camp Mosheva, and I made a lot of friends there. So, and a lot of these friends are my friends till today. Now, the way you're telling your story, I can see just how motivated you were to keep growing and you're able to convince your parents to switch from public school to a Jewish school. Something tells me you had the same motivation to find your way to Israel. So does that happen next in the journey? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so 
I was involved at NCSY back in 1968 was my first convention. And I made a lot of friends. I became uh, the regional uh, president of NCSY. And I, I enjoyed my relationships with everybody. And I just said, I want to go to Israel and learn in the yeshiva in Israel. And I was the only one in my whole class that did that in NCSY. My, a lot of my friends in B'nai Akiva were going, but in NCSY, I was the only one. So I went. There was no programs yet. Nobody had all the areas of programs. I signed up with some organization that was going to get me into a school, Yeshiva. And I guess they got my name wrong because my full name is Joe, not Joseph. It's Joe. And I guess when I put that down, they thought I was a girl because they put me in a seminary. And when I got to the door, I realized, okay, this is the wrong place for me to go to. And I was already, I went to Israel right in the beginning of the summer because I wanted to learn how to speak and this and that. So I, what am I doing the whole summer? I went to Israel. And when I got there, I realized, okay, now I have no place to go. I went from one place to another. And finally, I was looking for a yeshiva that was a Baal yeshiva, and there weren't any. And so I got in, I asked, I pleaded with one yeshiva, I won't mention the name, famous yeshiva. I said, please let me go. And they said, no, you're, you don't know enough, which is true. I know. <laughs> I didn't know anything. So I, I, they said, uh, a friend of mine said, you know, there's a yeshiva starting for Balchuvas in Tel Aviv and go over there. I'll give you the address. And I went over there. I met with this rabbi and I said, oh my gosh, this is the greatest rabbi I ever met. I just fell in love with this rabbi. And he told me everything he was going to do. And I said, how many students do you have? And he goes, well, right now we have four. We're just starting. We have four. You would make number four. You would be the fourth student. I said, okay, but I got a little bit of a problem. I don't have any money. I, I can't pay. He says, I'm not asking for any money because I got to get this started. I really want to start a, a, pro, a yeshiva for Balchubas. So I said, okay, can I meet these students? So he, he introduces me to the first student. If you remember the movie Revenge of the Nerds, this guy probably wrote it. He was an extremely challenging guy. And I said, okay, I can't, I don't know if I can be a roommate with him. All right, let me get to the next guy. Met the next guy. The next guy was worse than the first guy. I said, <laughs> okay, I, I, I got, okay, let me meet the third guy. Third guy was a regular guy. And, and so we, I, I said, okay, I'll room with him. This will be great. I'm in. And the rabbi said, we have a little bit of a problem with him. We have to lock up his bicycle on Shabbos. Otherwise, he rides away. I said, Rabbi, good luck on your yeshiva. I'll let you know, but I think I'm going to try to do something else. So I left. And I ended up in B'nai Kiva. They finally got me on a hakshara, which is the kibbutz. And I wasted a whole year on kibbutz, but I had a lot of fun. Didn't learn, but I had a lot of fun. Okay, the mistakes in my life are plenty. We'll talk about that some other time. So I'm going to just let you know, I met this rabbi years later. This rabbi's name was Noach Weinberg. Rabbi Noach Weinberg is the rabbi who started Or Sameach and Eshetorah later on. One of the great rabbis of all time. I met Rabbi Noach Weinberg later on at a uh, convention, and I mentioned the whole story. And he goes, you only know half the story. He goes, I remember that summer. I was taking anything I could get. But you don't know about the bicycle rider. I said, no, what happened to him? He says, well, he was riding his bicycle because he was training to be in the Olympics. He was a, a medalist. 
and speed racing, and he would ride his bicycle four hours every day. And so when he came to us, he wasn't Shomer Shabbos yet. And once he did become Shomer Shabbos, he wouldn't ride his bicycle, obviously, on Shabbos. But then came the trials, and he was supposed to represent Israel in the Olympics. And he was a medalist. He would finally get a gold medal. And the trials came up on Shabbos. And he, uh, he, Israel and America were trying to get the trial date to be changed because he can't ride on Shabbos. And the Olympic came back and the committee said, either, no, we're not changing it. Either he rides on, on Saturday or he's out of the Olympics. And after eight years of training every single day, weightlifting, you know, to build up the leg muscles and, and riding the bicycle, he had a choice. Do I keep Shabbos or follow my dream of being in the Olympics? And I think everybody knows, since I'm telling the story, that he chose Shabbos. He did not write on the Shabbos, and he did not go to the Olympics. As a footnote, these Olympics were the 72 Munich Olympics. And for those who don't know the story, the Palestinian terrorists captured all the weightlifters and others, uh, Israelis, in the Olympic village. And they cut them hostage. And then they killed them all. If he would have broke Shabbos and been in the Olympics, he would have been killed along with all the other Israeli weightlifters. And now I hear he's some rub in Eretz Israel. It's really just an unbelievable story when you think about you face a very difficult decision and you think you understand all the aspects of that decision, but sometimes it takes more events to unfold to really understand what decision you were making. Yes. I always say that I made a choice that was not correct. I should have stayed, obviously. Eventually, I had to get back onto the path of Torah and mitzvahs and, and learning Torah. Life is always a journey and you get choices. And sometimes you make the right choice and sometimes you make the wrong choice. But the path of Torah is always the path that you should follow. That's what I tell kids today. Don't follow my advice. But then again, one of my ch children said, Dad, you have 40 grandchildren and a great grandchild and many sons who are rabbis. If you didn't go on Hatshorah, if you would have went to Yeshiva, you would have never met mom. And therefore, we would never have been born. So you know what? My optimism in life is I made my choices. I make it as best I can. And I let the Rabboni Shalom figure out how to put it all back together. And let's continue with that story. You just referenced all these grandkids and a great grandkid. So we need to figure out what happens between coming back from Israel and getting to this large extended family. So pick up a story from the time that your moments in Israel come to an end. I guess you now come back to the United States. Well, we have to go back a year. When I was a senior, I wanted a kosher kitchen. It's very difficult to eat non-kosher food and keep Shabbos and daven and learn and you're keeping mitzvahs and get kosher. I'm, I'm, I wasn't eating ham anymore, but I was not, the kitchen was not kosher. And I was, uh, it was the day before school started as a senior. And all I did was I just prayed to Hashem, listen, I, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do about this. My parents have said, they'll let me go to day school. They'll let me do this. They'll let me do, they're letting me do everything, but I have to eat with the family and it's not kosher. I didn't know where else I can go because otherwise I, wa I wanted to have a good relationship with my parents. I had to follow their rule. And this was a very difficult time. 
And then the day before school started, I was with my father working downtown. We were coming back and there was a huge fire in our house. The flames were just shooting up into the sky. I never saw a fire like this. It was just shooting up in the sky. The firemen said, it's too hot to get anywhere near the fire. We're trying to get, we're throwing water into the house. After everything was done, the fire was contained in the kitchen. The kitchen caught on fire. Nobody was home. Thank God, because nobody would have survived. My sisters were out and my mother was uh, shopping. They don't know exactly how the fire started, but it did. And the fire stayed in the kitchen so hot that the refrigerator and the oven and even the grates of the oven melted. There was no walls left. There was no ceiling. You can look right up and see my bedroom. There was no floor and there was nothing in the kitchen. Even the kitchen sink got blown through the wall. The rest of the house was fine. It had smoke damage and we were out of the house for three months, but Everything else survived. There was no fire anywhere else. Everything stayed in the kitchen. And we're all sitting there and we're all, my gosh, what a catastrophe and everything. My mother turned to me and said, well, if I have to rebuild the kitchen, I'll make it kosher. And I was the happiest guy on the face of the earth. And for three months, I was able to eat at kosher restaurants every single night and the insurance paid for it. So I didn't have any problem from that point on eating kosher. But my mother came to me right before I went to Israel and said, I'll keep the kitchen kosher, even though you're not here. And we will not fool around with it. And my mother was very trustworthy. I will keep the kitchen kosher on the condition that when you come back from Israel, you eat at your grandparents' house. And my grandparents didn't keep kosher. I came back from Israel. I, here I am. I've had a year where I, my from kite got, even though I was on kibbutz, I, I, I've been living as a Jew. I've been living as a Jew. And I, I, I forgot what it was like to live in a house. That was not religious. And I sat down and I came back and my mother said, we're eating by grandma and grandpa tomorrow. And I said, oh, she says, you remember the deal? I said, yes. She goes, I kept it kosher and you have to follow the deal. And I said, okay. And I went to my grandparents' house and I sat down at the table and there was non-kosher food in front of me. And I was shaking and my parents were looking at me and saying, remember the deal? And I said, yes. And I took the fork with the food and I had tears in my eyes and I was shaking, trying to figure out how I'm going to eat this without tasting it. I didn't know what to do. And my sister said to me, I thought you can't eat that type of food anymore. And with that, I just dropped and I broke down in tears and went into the bedroom. And my grandfather came back a second later, pulled me in by my hand, put me down at the table, took the plate, threw it out, took a, some kosher fish that he had, a smoked fish, put it on, the, on a plastic plate, gave me a plastic fork, and he said to my parents, nobody has to sin in my house. The deal is off. And my parents said, yes, the deal is off. So God always intervenes. All you have to do is cry enough <laughs> and eventually things work. My mother and father kept that kitchen kosher until they left the house. Did you ever spend any time thinking, whoa, was this Hashem stepping in on my behalf to make something happen? And isn't it strange that the firemen couldn't pinpoint exactly what happened in this fire? I've been asked that question from NCS wires constantly. And I tell them this, number one, 
I ain't a Navi. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how Hashem works. I'm not going to try to understand how Hashem works. If Moshe couldn't figure it out, I'm not going to figure it out. My personal feeling, of course, I believe that God always helped me. All through my life, every time I needed God, it seems that God comes around and helps me. If you can't see miracles, it's because you're not looking. If you, if you got to open your eyes. Otherwise, you're not going to see how God takes your hand and get, guides you and helps you. Sometimes he slaps you. Sometimes he gives you a kick. I'm not saying my life has been simple and easy and everything is fine. Everything, oh, I never had any troubles. Of course, I've had many troubles, believe me. But I always know that whatever God does, the good and the bad, there's always God doing it and always God helping me. I can't tell you that the fire was caused because I prayed so hard that I wanted a kosher kitchen. All I can say is, of course, I believe that God answered my prayers. As you're telling this story, it's reminding me when I was first becoming religious and learned about Tisha B'Av for the first time and not to go swimming during the nine days. And my parents had invited my wife and I and our kids to go swimming at their pool during the nine days. And I was dreading having to tell my parents that we don't swim anymore and trying to explain this Tisha B'Av thing they'd never heard of. And I was talking to Hashem saying, how am I going to get out of this? This conversation is going to be damaging to my relationship to my parents. And lo and behold, it poured that day and the swim <laughs> plans were changed. So it's not the same story as yours. You had a very localized fire in one house and I got a big rainstorm across the entire tri-state area, but the same mission was accomplished, not having to do something you didn't want to do. It's, I, I will add one other story that's related to this whole thing is that when I was born, I was the last of the cousins who was a male to be born. All my other cousins are older than me. And um, my mother, while she was in the hospital, uh, she um, said to everybody, I, none of my cousins had a bris mila. They were circumcised by a doctor in the hospital, but not a bris mila. And my mother said, we're going to give him a bris mila. I'm going to find a, a moil, and we're going to have the moil do it in the house on the eighth day, and we're going to do everything right, and I'm even going to have a meal. And it's going to be even, I'll get kosher food. Everybody in the family went to her, what are you doing? You don't believe in this? What are you doing? Just have the doctor do it in the house like we did. Just have the doctor do this circumcision. My mother goes, nope, we're going to have it done right. And uh, they asked my father. My father, in his traditional way of answering anything, said, well, she had the baby. It's her decision. And everybody argued, and she was adamant. She stuck to it. He's going to have a bris mila. And they said, why? She goes, what am I going to say to him if this child becomes religious one day? That I was too lazy and didn't care enough to start his life off correctly? And so I had a bris mila by a moil at the house with even kosher food. And I always tell people, and I said it at my eighth son's bris, I said, I don't know why I am Zoha to have eight sons. All I can see is my mother, who was still you know, was sitting there, I said, my mother gave me a bris, and maybe that is why I was able to have eight sons. Again, I'm not a Navi. I can't say that that's absolutely correct. I don't know. 
But sometimes we just have to go with our feelings. And that's my feeling. Now, you've referenced how many kids you have, grandkids, your wife, a few times. So the one part of your story we haven't brought in is how your wife comes into the picture. And we haven't talked at all about what you've been doing career-wise all these years. No. So maybe you can just share that part of your life. So I went to college. I went to, got into accounting. At one point, I was going to give up accounting and then decide to go to yeshiva and learn full-time in the yeshiva. And I dropped out of accounting. I'm going to learn in Skokie Yeshiva. And of course, that was the year that Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik got kicked out of the yeshiva and there was no learning anywhere. Everybody was going crazy at the yeshiva and I had a very bad experience. And then I went back to school and went into accounting. So that, you know, every once in a while, you know, things are thrown at you and you don't handle them right. So I went into accounting. I became an accountant for uh, a furniture company and left that, became a a caterer part-time, and then got into nursing homes in terms of uh, accounting and and financial work in in nursing homes, which I'm still doing. My hobby is NCSY. I love working with kids. I still go to conventions. I don't know why, but I'm really at the age of their, I'm older than some of their grandparents, but I still love teaching kids, talking to them. And that's my job now is just to go to conventions and talk with groups and individual. And I learn uh, at night with kids on the phone. And your wife who helped produce these eight fine young men, what was her religious background compared to yours? How did you meet and how did you come into your life? She came from St. Louis. Her father, Rabbi Aaron Burrow and Rebetzin Burrow, who's still, Rebetzin Burrow is still teaching, uh, Pearl Burrow is still teaching at the YU, uh, all over Israel. She's got classes all over. She's still teaching. She's probably the most brilliant person in Tanakh I've ever known. And I'm not only saying that, some of the Rosh Yeshivas that my, my boys have gone to, says, one time they said, uh, we don't understand, hear me out. call your bubby. Get her on the phone. Let's get an answer on what is, what's going on in, in tonight. And they would. And she knew it without even opening up a safe. She explained the whole thing. That's my mother-in-law. From family, obviously, he was a rub of a show. And uh, my uh, wife, Becky, uh, she's probably listening to this from the other room. So this is not good. And I can't whisper, right? Uh, she is the only decision I ever made that was correct. <laughs> she's, I, we all wonder why she married me. In fact, at our wedding, when we were walking down, uh, I was in front, she was lined up behind me and we're going down the hall. And my mother, who was an extremely funny person, she said, Becky, it's not too late. I have a nephew sitting out there right now. He's got a suit and tie on and uh, we'll just switch. You know, he's much better than Joey. So we'll just switch and uh, you marry him. And Becky, everybody started laughing. And my mother-in-law says, oh, that genie, she's always making a joke. And, my, and I said, oh, she's not joking. He is better than me. And truthfully, he is. And my cousin is. Anyway, so we met at Camp Mosheva and she's the sweetest, nicest person in the entire world. As I've done so many of these interviews, I've met a lot of people who went through the kind of transition that you did, but it happened much later in life than it did for you. It was in their 20s, 30s, like the kind of years where you're really trying to figure out who you are. What do you think motivated you at such a young age, I think compared to most, to want to change your life and take on everything that comes of living as an Orthodox Jew? Once I came up to the conclusion that there's God, all I wanted to do was serve him. 
like I said, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I am thrilled and no regrets whatsoever in any way that I made that decision because I still want to serve God. And here's the book that says, this is the, here's the guidelines. This is what I want you to do. I, you understand it? No. Okay, fine. <laughs> Who cares if you understand or not? God said to do it. And I, and, I, I, and I still to this day say, how did a kid like me make one choice other than marrying my wife, one choice that was correct? And then I always look and I say, because when I first started, God took me by the hand in many different ways and said, okay, keep going. And that's what I always do. And I'll tell you a crazy story. And it has got to do with choices in life. The only best friend I ever had was a kid named Donnie Nelson. I went through kindergarten, first grade, second, all the way through high school, uh, through sophomore year in high school. We were best friends, spent every moment of our lives together. We did everything together. Donnie Nelson, when I became religious around 14, 15, he took on a different way of life. He became a greaser, a gang member, very bad gang member. And he dropped out of high school and I dropped out of high school at the same time, but I went to day school. I learned. Two or three years later, I was in the Isles West with my NCSY kids walking, and we were going to just learn a little. I said, let's go down this hall. And they said, no, the greasers sit there. They'll kill you. And I'll, now I'm wearing a kippah. And they said, I'm not afraid of anybody. Yeah, big talker. Now I weighed 115 pounds. So I went down the hallway. They all fled. They didn't want to go down that hallway. And all of a sudden, the greasers took a look at me and about a dozen of them get up and they're pounding their fists and they licking their chops. I mean, you're right. We're really going to do a number on this kid. And all of a sudden, one guy looks at me and he goes, Joey. And I look at him and I go, Donnie? It's my best friend, Donnie Nelson. We ran to each other and we gave each other the biggest hug you've ever seen. I, I, the only example I have is Yaakov and Esau. Not that I'm Yaakov. And after the big hug, we pulled apart and we both looked at each other and we both at the exact same time said, what happened to you? <laughs> and I, I always think of this because the last time I heard about Donnie was he was killed in prison for crimes that he did that were terrible. And I always say two people, we had everything, we were inseparable. From kindergarten on, I became observant. I believe in Hashem. I accepted all the mitzvahs, and I love Hashem. And that's my life. And I got a huge family of Torah-observant Jews, uh, children, and wonderful. And my life is fantastic. Two choices. He made one choice, I made the other. And that's what we have always in life. We have paths. If you take the choice of Torah and mitzvahs, you get chayim, you get life. Not, can't tell you what can happen to you. And that, I think, is the story of my life. Uh, choices, I'm not saying I always made right choices, but I made it one thing that I always made sure that it never failed. I always will be a Balchuva, and I'll always continue to grow in my Yiddish. Joe, I just have to say that you are an unbelievable storyteller. And what's been amazing about this interview is you have taken us inside your journey through these stories that happened to you and how they shaped your life and where it is today. Thank you for the inspiration today and for sharing it on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me.
Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.